Hello and welcome to this early investigators webinar being offered for you in audio format so you can listen on the go. If you would like to view this entire video version, please click the link in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to a PEDRA Early Investigator webinar, Reviewing and Publishing, How to Make an Impact in Pediatric Dermatology. This is a joint effort presented by the PEDRA Early Investigator Committee, as well as the Society for Pediatric Dermatology Junior Faculty and Fellows Committee. This was recorded live on Wednesday, June 8, 2022. The program hosts are Dr. Elena Haraluk, a pediatric dermatologist and assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Lucy Cohn, pediatric dermatologist and assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. At this time, I'll turn it over to Dr. Cohn to introduce our first speakers. Well, thank you, Jen. Um, so I am so pleased to introduce our first two speakers tonight. I have had the pleasure of knowing Andrea Zinglin and Lionel Berkovich through the roles as co-editors in chief of pediatric dermatology. Um, I have worked with them as an author, as a reviewer, and an associate editor for the journal, and I'm always impressed with their energy, their meticulousness, and compassion towards each submission. For our younger folks in the audience who are becoming familiar with our field, Dr. Zinglin is a professor of dermatology and pediatric dermatology at Penn State and is one of our field's experts on acne. Dr. Berkovich is the director of pediatric dermatology at, um, at Brown and has written extensively, including editing a textbook on dermatoethics. Lionel and Andrea, I'm looking forward to learning from you tonight. Thanks, Lucy. I'm unmuted. Good. Uh, so we're going to begin with a discussion of sort of just the general process of uh, publishing and what goes on in the journal and, and also the important role of being a good reviewer, which I think in many ways helps you, makes you a better author. I don't, oh, there we go. Sorry, let me just, uh, so this probably looks like uh, one of the, uh, you know, mTOR pathway diagrams you see, uh, or one of the things you see with the, uh, how, how Dupixent works, but um, this is going to take you through what happens when, when articles are submitted and where backlogs occur. So when manuscripts are received in the, at the, at the, after you upload them, they, they go uh, initially to uh, an editorial office. Wiley's an international uh, uh, publisher, so they have the editorial, initial editorial process goes on in India. Um, we have a very uh, good editorial assistant there who, who actually checks the articles and will tell you what they check for and then assigns it to uh, one of us randomly. Um, and then uh, we read each article and then either uh, make an editorial decision or assign it to an associate editor. And uh, the associate editors then assign, choose reviewers and we'll go on into go into how that's done. And um, the reviewers uh, have a couple of weeks to turn their reviews around, uh, but we can see backlogs in this area right here when, um, um, there's a delay in assigning reviewers or when reviewers don't respond right away and have to be reminded that they were asked to review, which also slows down the whole process. Um, and then after the reviews are returned, uh, the associate editors look at the reviews, look at the recommendations of the, um, of the reviewers. They actually do a copy edit as well and go through the article in much more detail. And then they make a decision which then goes back to one to whichever editor-in-chief they work with. And then we either make a final editorial decision 
um, well, we do make a final editorial decision either to uh, send it on for more revision or turn it to a different format or just reject it. And then it goes through the whole process uh, of re then the revision takes place by the authors. It can take anywhere from a couple of days to up to six months, depending on you know, how fast the authors move uh, before the articles then archived. And um, we go through the whole process again. Um, one thing that Andrea and I do and, and our social editors do is we try to really minimize the number of times articles have to go back and forth by doing extensive copy editing and, and checking the formatting early on so that when the uh, revisions are submitted, um, they don't require a lot of sending back over and over again to fix minor things. So, um, and at the end, if, if an article looks really good, we'll make the copy edits ourselves and just uh, send it on to production. We're not going to burden you with, uh, you know, putting in punk fixing punctuation and references and so on. So it's a little bit more what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, it's, it's a bit like, you know, you maybe don't want to know what's goes into making uh, hot dogs. You just like hot dogs, but um, Initially, the initial screen when you send an article in is for com how complete the submission is. Is everything that was supposed to go in submitted? Are the appropriate permissions and consents uh, accompanying the article? And at this point, the uh, uh, editorial system reviews the uh, the figures to make sure they meet the minimum requirements for resolution. All these requirements are in the, are in the author guidelines, and it's always a good idea to check the author guidelines before you. Um, uh, submit a paper to make sure you've got the right word limit, reference limit, you have the right uh, resolution for photographs and size of photographs. And then, as pretty well every journal does now, uh, articles go through a plagiarism check. And this software is amazing. I mean, uh, a lot of times, a lot of these, and nobody has a 0% um, index. I mean, it's, it's not that people are plagiarizing, but if multiple authors have written together, their grouping will show up as, as having been in other papers. And, and if uh, if you presented an abstract with the same on, on, at, at SPD and then submit the article, it's going to show up sometimes as forty or fifty percent. But we can tell because we know we have access to the abstract and just like they do, and, and we know that's that it's not plagiarism. Um, and then and then they send they flag the original report if, if it's if it's more than forty percent overlap. Then we screen and we read, we read through the PDFs um, and look at the figures. Um, and the first thing that we look are, is this, is this really novel? Is this something that's really worth publishing? Um, is the English acceptable for review? Uh, we're pretty lax about that, but if the English is really uh, just uh, almost unreadable, it's going to cause the article to be rejected because reviewers aren't gonna have that kind of patience. So we'll send the articles. Um, back to the authors for, for editing, but most of the time we'll, we'll just let it slide unless it's really egregious. Again, we also, we look at other things in the figures, for example, color and white balance are very important in photomicrographs uh, as is orientation. We're not gonna reject something at this, at this uh, you know, at this, at this stage or send it back to fix that, that'll be done at the next stage, but we look at those things as well. Um, Sometimes we, we, early on, we realize, you know, everybody loves the sound of their own cases and their own voices. And, and, and you know, a lot of things that, that can be submitted as a brief report, 500 words, get blown up to 1,500 words. And, and really, a lot of material is in there that could be in a text that really you can find in textbooks. Um, so we'll recommend that it, come, it be resubmitted as a brief report, and then we'll send it out for review. 
or sometimes something is, is really not that unique, but the pictures are great and the case is interesting and it's a diagnostic challenge. And we'll suggest that it go, it be submitted as a photo quiz. And then we'll also read through if the plagiar, read through the plagiarism report if it's flagged. And then we assign it or make an editorial decision. The next, you know, reviewers have to choose, so have to be, editors have to choose a reviewer. Um, and they have access to a, a list of every reviewer in the database. Uh, Elena, we, we chose you because you're such a model reviewer with a perfect score. Um, and um, you can see here that when you, when you become a reviewer, you can actually choose your areas of expertise or interest. Uh, it's not that you couldn't review almost anything. Uh, when it comes to case reports, you really could review almost, almost everything. When it comes to more research-based studies or original reports, you might feel more intimidated if you don't have expertise in the area. Um, so we, we know what the areas of expertise are and interest are for each of the uh, editor uh, reviewers. Uh, reviewers can be suggested by the author. Uh, we might or might not uh, follow the author's um, recommendations because there's often some conflict of interest. Um, but it sometimes surprises me that even reviewers suggested by the authors can be very critical, uh, even when they've worked together in the past. And um, sometimes we suggest reviewers uh, the areas of interest. They, they can actually uh, screen for areas of interest and then get a list of reviewers there. Um, they can go through the web of science, which is also uh, uh, part of our of the Scholar One database. Uh, sometimes uh, associate editors know people in their own institutions that have specific expertise and they'll ask them. Uh, members of the editorial board are an important resource. They're expected to do uh, about 10 reviews a year. Um, and, um, uh, and that's true of every journal. And we, we certainly take advantage of of uh, their expertise and, and expect them to, to be available for reviews. Again, we try to look at their areas of expertise. Uh, we have some couple of reviewers that are real super reviewers. They just do amazing reviews and we probably go back to them more than we should, but uh, as long as they keep saying yes and they do such a good job, uh, we'll eventually make them members of the editorial board anyway. After the article is accepted or gone through all its revisions, uh, the next step is goes to production and then you get back a proof and you then have to proofread your own article and then we proofread the proof after you've done it. Um, I just chose this one because it was the only one that I, I could actually find that I had, well, I was down to just one proof left. So uh, when we prepare these slides, so there's nothing special about the article, but uh, the journal uses HTML proofing, which is really very easy to use. Um, uh, it's like, it's really almost like, like, copy editing a Word document. It's not like copy editing uh, uh, PDF with Adobe. You don't need any kind of special software and it's pretty straightforward. So it takes a village to run a journal. Um, we have two editors in chief. We have um, six, seven associate editors. Um, Don Davis does primarily review articles. Everyone else does uh, general reviewing. Uh, we have a, a, a section editor who gets the photo quizzes without the editor's chief seeing them. We have an, a, a section editor for uh, procedural dermatology. We have one for, uh, we have two actually, Lucy and Neil Prose for uh, arts and humanities. We have a statistical editor, which is something we really long wanted. If you have uh, questions about statistics or it's over your head, 
Uh, Sharif will do a great job of, of analyzing the statistical uh, statistics used in the article. Um, and we report to our publishing manager at, at, uh, at uh, Wiley and we meet with him once a month and he's uh, very helpful in helping us uh, get through, uh, uh, get things done that need to be changed in the journal. And this is our, uh, go backwards here, I guess. Um, this is our editorial board. There's about 50 people on the editorial board. And every two or three years, we, every year actually we update it. And uh, every three years we, we, you know, we move people on, uh, on and off. So, uh, you know, something that it's, I think it's helpful for people who are trying to get promoted to be on an editorial board, but it's also, a, uh, it's not an honorary position. It's a working uh, position. And, uh, um, you know, people who just, don't review in timely fashion or don't do a lot of reviews, don't stay on the editorial board. We'll, we'll replace them with people who've been uh, very uh, uh, loyal and, and expert and, and, and uh, available reviewers. So I'm gonna turn this over to Andrea now, and then we'll answer questions later on about uh, what we talk about on our slides. Okay, so like, um like most things in life, as you move further on, so like when I became an associate, or when I became an associate editor, I learned what it was to be a good reviewer. Um, so the purpose of this talk is to try to hopefully get you to that point where you're a good reviewer long before you've moved on. Um, so I stole most of this information from Wiley sources. Um, they have on their website. They have. Uh, uh, variety of videos and written materials um, that if you wanna go further in depth to, to learn about the reviewing process, um, that's a great resource for you. And I could share that information later. So you agree to be a reviewer and they send you, Lionel sends you an invite and you accept it. The first thing you're gonna do is open up the PDF and it'll come to you in a PDF form and do what we call the first read through. And this is, a, this is the, First, you're kind of gestalt of the paper. You're gonna ask yourself several questions. Is the paper a useful contribution? So, um, and is it appropriate for our pediatric dermatology audience? So you as a pediatric dermatologist, do you feel like this paper um, is, is interesting to you? Um, and are you gonna learn something from it? Um, is the literature review current and does it take place in appropriate context? Uh, are there any similar reports? So it's, as a reviewer, it's good to do a quick PubMed search and just see, um, you know, is there any recent publications that are very similar to it? Is it really as novel as they say? Sometimes things get submitted and in the process, new um, articles get published at the same time that it can be very similar. We saw a lot of that with COVID publications. Um, you want to ask yourself, are the methods and analysis valid and clear? And are the tables and figures clear as well? Is there a good use of space in the table? So a lot of times when you look at that PDF, you'll see, you know, the table may take up three, four pages and you'll, you might want to quick jot that down um, that that table need would be uh, better served being edited. You, you'll ask yourself, are the conclusions valid and is the discussion uh, insightful? Do they give you, um, does it, does it discuss the, the context of the case or the, um, or the research in context with the other literature? Um, are the, do they recognize what their limitations are? 
what is the relevance and implications of their findings? And as Lionel pointed out, is the writing clear and concise? Uh, and then always you want to note whether there's any ethical issues that need to be addressed. And Lionel's going to talk about that at the end of my part of this talk. Okay, so after you do your first initial read through, get the gestalt of your paper, it's good to um, draft one to two paragraphs, kind of restate the main question addressed by the research or the case report and summarize the goals, approaches, and conclusions of the paper. So you're gonna say, you know, this is a case control study looking at uh, the treatment of acne in teenagers on spironolactone. We feel this, or I feel that this is very useful to the pediatric dermatology audience. Um, so you, you wanna help put the editor, help the editor put that um, research or case report in the context of, of um, whether you feel it is appropriate for our audience. You want to show the author the key messages that are conveyed to the reader. So you kind of rehash, like, what was your takeaway from that? Focus on some successes in the successful aspects of the paper so that the author gets a sense of what they did right. Um, provide a conceptual overview of the contribution of the research. So where does this fit into what you know about the subject? Um, are the methods appropriate? And does the data support the conclusions? And at this point, um, you can decide whether that manuscript is so seriously flawed or reject it and, and want and reject it. Um, next slide. Um, if you choose to reject, remember, we've already rejected many of them. So before they even get to the reviewer stage. So it's important um, that you have a good reason for rejection and that you relay that back to the author as well as the editors on why you feel that this paper should be rejected. Um, so even if you have come to the opinion that that article was, had, was fatally flawed and that you needed to, that you don't feel like it's appropriate for publication in our journal, um, make sure you still have read the whole paper and make sure that you provide feedback to the authors because that can help them with future submissions. And Carrie's going to talk about how that how she uses that in her papers as well. Um, and also you just wanna make sure that, you know, you're, that you're correct and fair in your assessment. So we need to kind of know what you were thinking at that point. Next slide. So here's an example of three reviews that um, I got back on, uh, on a single paper. So um, you can see it's very much like the, about, about like Goldilocks sitting on her uh, different bed. So the first one was from the reviewer that the author chose. <laughs> and you can see that was a little soft, right? It's not giving us too much information. It's a rarely seen interesting case report, well-written can be published. There's no information about it, no, no suggestions for corrections, anything like that. Um, the next one is a little harsh, um, a little hard. Um, they said it was, confusing, written in poor English. Um, they, they, he states the authors do not succeed in explaining convincingly um, which metabolic defect there was. Um, so, but didn't really have much positive to say about the article. Um, and he rejected, he, re he recommended rejection. The third reviewer did a much better job. Um, 
They start off positive. So thank you for this interesting case report. Your photos are quite excellent, giving them some nice feedback about the report. However, they still continue to have significant um, concerns about the report. So they said they're not entirely convinced that the diagnosis was correct and stated why. They also gave them feedback about how to improve their case report by um, asking them questions so um, that they had when they read through that case report. So was their patient bottle fed or breastfed? Did they measure uh, when they the timing of their zinc levels, things like that. And then also they note that there are several grammatical errors in the report. So um, noting that the, that the English language was also part of an issue with this report. So you can see the quality and the variety of reports that we get um, can be quite varied. And you want to fall right there in the middle in the sweet spot where you're not too soft, but not too hard. Um, you're just right. Next one. So if you choose to go on to that, you feel like the article is worthwhile um, and that it's not fatally flawed on that first read through, then you want to do a second read through and you want to get yourself settled down. So on average, if it should take, if you're doing like a, a large, um, so like when that, sometimes, you know, like if I have to do a large review uh, or a review of a original article that is quite long, that has a lot of detail to it, a lot of uh, methodology, um, it can take up to a, at least an hour uh, of my time to be able to fully and adequately uh, review that article. So you want to make sure that you give yourself enough time to do that. Obviously, if you're doing a brief report or a even a case report, it's not going to, it may not take you that long. But if you're doing a original article, um, it's going to take quite a while. Um, the benchmark for acceptance is whether that manuscript um, has is a useful contribution to our knowledge base or understanding of, in, of a subject matter. So what I ask myself is what did I learn from this and how am I gonna use this information in my practice? Remember we're a clinical, um, our, a clinical pediatric dermatology um, journal. So sometimes we get uh, articles that are you know, not appropriate for our audience that they're more appropriate maybe for a basic science audience or, um, or perhaps like a genetics journal. Um, so Lionel and I was running by with Lionel on how he does this. And we do it very similarly. So um, I always have a pen and paper with me so that I can jot down notes um, and have the Word document up and, and kind of type as I go. You always want to note page lines and numbers. So our page numbers and line numbers at, when, you're, when you're referring to a specific um, method, but let's say uh, uh, a specific um, area in the text, you want to be able to call attention to where that is. So you always want to note what the page number and line number that you're referring to is. And you kind of keep that as a running list. I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Um, also, it's very it's a good idea to have all the images and graphs and any of the tables um, ready for review so that when you're reading through the text, you can refer to them easily as well. Next slide. So then you're just gonna go through the article from the top to the bottom and start um, taking notes as you go. 
starting with the title, does it properly reflect the subject of the paper? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you read the title and you know, after you've done your initial um, read through, you're like, I don't think that kind of represents what it is. Um, and so you can make suggestions for title changes. Does the abstract provide accessible summary of the paper? So does it get highlight the key results of it? Um, if it's a case report, does it succinctly tell what that report is about without going into it's a lot of detail? Sometimes people like to try to reproduce the whole case report in their abstract, but I like to think of it as giving them like a little nugget so that then they actually look inside the journal or download the article for us. So you don't want to give them too much detail. Uh, is the paper an appropriate length? Again, as Lionel mentioned, sometimes it, brevity uh, is key and you can actually present many of the cases as a, a smaller brief report. One thing I think it's important to note is we get a lot of brief reports that are reject and resubmit as a brief report. So make sure before you choose that selection that you've actually checked to see if it is a brief report or not. I think sometimes people default to that because they don't wanna to be too harsh and say rejection, but um, if it's already a brief report, we don't have a brief, brief report. So that's as, that's as small as we get. Um, make sure that you check the language, grammar, and punctuation. So remember, you are not co copy editors. Um, you do not have to proofread the paper. That's what um, the associate editors and the uh, editors will do. But it is important that you comment if it needs significant English language um, uh, adjustment. So um, if you do copy edit, we'll note that, and then you'll probably just end up on as an associate editor one day. Um, make sure there's no factual errors or any invalid arguments to make sure that what their conclusions are uh, is, um, is, is actually true. Next slide. Um, all right, so go through your abstract. Again, providing key methods, the most important results and conclusions. Make sure it's highlighting the salient features of the case as well. The introduction should set out your argument and then summarize the recent research related to the topic. So kind of, get, again, introduce what they're going to be either researching or um, the, the features of the case report that they're presenting. Um, make sure it highlights any gaps in our current understanding and how this paper is going to contribute to it or what they're hoping it does. Is, does it establish the originality of that research in the context of, the, of what research is out there? The aims of the research um, should be clearly stated as well, uh, and that it gives any relevant or useful background information on, the, on, a, on a case report, if it is a case report. Next. The materials and methods section. So this is where sometimes um, it's straightforward. So if it's kind of descriptive statistics, just make sure that um, everything is clearly stated and replicable, repeatable, robust. Um, if it's unclear or if it's too advanced, um, you can always suggest that say, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with this methodology enough to say that this is uh, accurate or not, and that you refer the paper to the statistical reviewer. And Sharif uh, John Muhammad will uh, review it for us and give us great feedback on whether or not uh, the methodology is sound. 
When you look through the results section, make sure that they're telling a coherent story, what happened, what was discovered or confirmed. Uh, it shouldn't rehash everything that they also put in their table. So a lot of times um, authors will kind of put everything in their results and everything in their tables, and there's a lot of overlap between those. So if you notice that, you can suggest some editing of that down for conciseness. It should be objective. So when you present your results, it should just be the facts. There shouldn't be editorializing uh, with, within the results. That's really more for the discussion where you then take your results and then you can, um, you can put that into the context of, of previous results or what's a, the available information. Uh, the data should be consistently presented. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they, you know, they'll, they'll change up their, um, let's say they change up p-values or um, they will uh, present uh, differences in, let's say, their, you know, the percentages and things like that. So make sure that the data is presented consistently uh, and the outcome should be a critical analysis of the data collected. So if you have a case report, um, the second read through, you're gonna make sure that the, that the chrono, chronological order makes sense. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, it presents in infancy and then you'll follow them. Make sure that, it, that the timeline of this case report makes sense to you. Um, make sure they're giving significant and useful details. So remember case reports, um, we use those a lot, especially um, when we're trying, when we, we, go back and we're looking at that case because we have a similar case and we're like, all right, I'm going to try to treat this child, this uh, six month old with dupilumab and I want to know uh, what dosing they used. So uh, a lot of times authors don't always include that information to the degree that we need in order to find that report as useful as we could. So make sure that they're including the generic medication names, doses and durations of treatment. Um, and then also in the laboratory values, you want to make sure that the normal ranges are included as well. Um, did they complete their workup? So um, a lot of times the authors will come to a conclusion about a case and come to a diagnosis, but there may be missing significant uh, differential diagnoses that they haven't ruled out yet. So it's important that you highlight that. And as always with our journal, you want to make sure the photos are of high quality. So this is a, if you see the child with the alopecia areata, um, that can be cropped down quite a bit so that you don't see the, the uh, mom in the background um, or the lawyer, I'm not sure, whichever, um, and highlight the appropriate features uh, and do these uh, photos or highlight the appropriate features of the case. So they adequately showing the, the kind of, uh, characteristic features of the diagnosis that they're reporting. Uh, and then for the pathology, um, is, is it white balanced? Is the orientation correct? Can you see the features of the, the histologic features that the case, um, that the case describes? So we call on Adam Rubin a lot, who is a, a pediatric dermatopathologist, and he will help us if we're not sure if the pathology is appropriate for that case. So in, um, 
both case reports and in original articles, the discussion should be well organized, thoughtful, and thorough. It should evaluate the trends observed and explain the significance of that, their results to the wider understanding of that subject. Um, and that can only be done by referencing published research. So you have to make sure that the referencing is adequate and that the referencing is um, appropriate for the what, what the um, information that they're relaying is. So if there are gaps or inconsistencies in, in data or the story or limitations that should be addressed in the, in the discussion. And then the conclusion is usually no more than a paragraph and should reflect upon the aims and whether they were achieved or not. So, and lastly, you're gonna look at the images, graphs and data tables, are they too long? Um, are they necessary? Sometimes, they, sometimes we get reports, uh, original articles where there may be, let's say they'll have seven, eight, nine full page tables. Um, and that's a lot for anybody to sift through and probably uh, almost always these are, we don't need that number. Um, and again, review those, uh, are the images, not just the photos, but also any, uh, any, JPEGs, are they, or graphs, are they also of good enough quality? Sometimes they get, when they get transferred, they get quite blurry. Um, again, checking references for accuracy, adequacy, and balance, making sure that they're not oversighting themselves a lot, um, that they're using primary sources, especially if you're reviewing a review article. Um, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is people referring to other review articles for their review article that should be giving credit to the people that did the primary research. So if you notice that, make sure that that's the case um, and that they're up to date, that they're not just using references from the 1950s um, because uh, newer references are probably available. All right, and then next slide. So this one's really busy, but I just wanted, um, this is kind of showing you a great review. So Lionel shared this one with me, this um, from an off, from a reviewer. Um, and it's gonna be, unless you're on a large screen, it's gonna be a little hard for you to review at this time. But in general, you can see that um, I pointed out over to the right, some of the, um, really good things that this reviewer did and to show you kind of the depth that a review should be and the uh, and and how a good review is done, a right review, I should say. So you can see here that the, she starts off with um, the importance of the work, um, putting it into context to our pediatric dermatology audience by saying it provides much data in the area and um, RCM is for, uh, for confocal microscopy. Um, and, she's, and they start up very positive comments. So uh, she's thanking the authors for, this, authors for this important work. But then she gets down to business. So um, line by line, you can see page three, line 54, um, she's providing... Um, a good feedback by saying it's an important point and at, and suggesting additional references at that point. Um, as she goes on, she questions the methodology and makes clear suggestions for clarifications. Next page. You can see the, the report continues. 
She nicely points out errors in terminology and methodology. So she, 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 even though um, she has significant concerns about using, uh, about the methodology of this report, the, the reviewer um, is able to relay that back to the authors um, without um, being too harsh about it. Um, she uses references to support her position. So if she disagrees with something that they've said, she counters by providing them the appropriate reference for why she uh, disagrees. Um, she thoughtfully reviews the figures, goes through each of them, um, and uh, gives suggestions for improvements. Um, and then at the end, kind of round, ties it back to the beginning and ends more on a positive note. Um, so this is kind of an example of the depth and breadth that the a good a great review should be. Um, again, it's a little long for this, but it kind of shows you really how how a great review is done. Next slide. So once you've finished your your reviews, it's important that you always get credit for reviewing. Um, there's a couple resources for you as early investig or early reviewers um, to add. Make sure that you are keeping track of the reviews that you're doing, and you want to add them to your curriculum vitae um, for promotion. Make sure you can do this through Publon. So this is. Uh, uh, online source that records your reviewer activity as a measurable research output. Um, and then you get credit for each time that you do a peer review and they can tie that to your ORCID ID account as well. Um, and if you're a great reviewer, it's also a fast track to the editorial board because I can tell you, I can tell you the associate editors know who the great reviewers are and re really, really appreciate you. Um, and Lionel and I do as well. And with that, I'll turn it over to Lionel who's going to talk a little bit more about the etiquette and ethics of peer review. Oh, Lionel, you're on mute. There you go. I'm not used to being mute. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say that one uh, tip in reviewing is sometimes when you get an article, particularly if it's like a case report and something you don't know a whole lot about, uh, just you can, you can, and you can do it at any stage. You can do a quick uh, PubMed uh, search and, and it's, it's not uncommon that we, in doing that, you'll find out that somebody's already published this in the last three months and the authors were unaware of it or didn't cite it, or it's not, not as novel as, as, you know, they may make it seem like it's a very novel finding when in reality, it's not a novel finding. Um, so, and you can sometimes, if you, something seems a little, you're not sure about some fact they've cited, you could look at the reference that they've cited, just go to PubMed and look at the article if you, if you can access it through your library. So um, I'm gonna talk about the etiquette and ethics of peer review. I'm not talking so much about the, the ethics of what you should be looking for in, um, in the articles. I mean, the main thing you're gonna look for in terms of ethics in the article is if there's human study, is human subjects involved, please make sure it's gone through IRB review. Um, so the golden rule uh, applies here, speak unto others, you would have others speak unto you. You wanna really be careful about avoiding, avoiding inflammatory or derogatory statements. And we have reviewers that do that and sometimes we'll just edit out the uh, background noise to, so that it does not uh, 
does not come through to the authors. Um, try to be objective, specific, honest, and constructive, um, just like that last reviewer was. Uh, read it back to yourself before you press submit. Does it sound like the way you'd like to have a review sent to you? Um, it really helps us and helps the, the journal and helps the authors, and particularly you'll, you'll notice this when you're an author, that nothing is more maddening than waiting three months for a response. Um, we're pretty quick in assigning articles when they come through. Generally, they're, they're, we, the day we sign them, the day we get them. Um, and um, we, it barely takes more than three or four days for us to get to an article that's been assigned to us for a decision. Sometimes it takes a few more days, like during COVID time when we were getting 1,200 articles a year. Uh, but now we're back to a more normal volume. Um, reviewers are, are usually the cog that slows the wheel down, but not always. Um, so do unto others as you would have others do unto your articles. Um, one thing that, uh, that many reviewers do is uh, request that authors cite their papers. Uh, it's very tempting. It proves your citation index. Uh, I mean, if there's really good reason to cite your paper, fine, but it's not always necessary. Um, keep it confidential and discard the article after reviewing. We'll talk about confidentiality again in a minute. But, you're, but it's generally all the journals that you'll review for recommend that you discard the article after reviewing. It's, it's not meant to be used, kept for reference. Um, our journal and, and, and many other journals like JAD and, and Jamaderm will give the reviewers the opportunity uh, to comment off the record uh, and do so confidentially to the editors uh, and then have separate comments for the authors. Um, all journals will tell you not to submit the same thing to both the, author, the editors can read what you've told the authors. Um, but the one thing that sometimes happens is that we'll get very lengthy uh, uh, negative feedback from the reviewers or from the, re uh, from the reviewer or associate editor uh, uh, to the editor, uh, to the editor, but uh, then they'll have a two line uh, statement to the author saying, uh, interesting article, well done. And there's a real disconnect between the two. And it, what we have to do in that case is remove the well done and, and try to move some of the material that was shared with the editors back to the authors if we think it's appropriate. Um, you will be asked if you are willing to do a, a revision, a, re, a review or revision. If, and it really is a, a good thing if you agree to do so, unless you're just overwhelmed and can't get to it. Um, if it's, in other words, if it's a burden, then obviously we understand. Um, if you don't do it, it means we have to scurry around looking for, for new reviewers and it, it, it just slows the whole process down. Um, you know, we're all busy. Um, you know, we all have clinical ob obligations, academic obligations, family obligations, uh, and uh, they pull us in a lot of different directions. And But if you've published, you've benefited from peer reviews. So think of this before saying, no, it's paying it forward, but it's also paying it backward. Uh, but don't take on an assignment if you don't think you can complete it in timely fashion, or if you just think you can't do the subject justice. Uh, there's no, uh, um, you know, shame in admitting to the associate editor this is really way out of your wheelhouse and you don't feel comfortable. But please feel free to call on me again for something else. Um, there, there is a committee on publication ethics, and it actually serves as a resource, and will actually. Uh, accept complaints of, of, of uh, publishing and, and editing malfeasance and reviewing malfeasance. Sorry. 
uh, malfeasance and, uh, um, and, and do an analysis and, and post their analysis anonymously. Um, so, uh, a second, I guess I can actually get that off here. What happened here? I just lost. Uh... Here we go. Um, so, confidentiality. So, what happens to Scholar One stays in Scholar One. Um, confidentiality is not the same as uh, anonymity. Um, and the confidentiality reviewing means you do not share what you've, what you've reviewed with uh, those outside the process other than the editors and associate editors. Um, uh, this also applies to the, to the trainees. Some of you who are on tonight may be asked uh, or offered to do reviews uh, by your mentors. It's a good experience and you get feedback and it's a great way to learn how to review. Um, it's also a good thing if the um, um, reviewer, the formal reviewer shares the name of the uh, trainee uh, with the editor or with the editor in the journal so you can get some uh, credit. Um, if you've, you should not use anything you've gained in reviewing and the article for your own advantage or that of industry or collaborators with your research until after the article is published, when and if the information is public, uh, you should destroy all copies of manuscript files. I and mean, this is common, common uh, um, ethical behavior. Um, we use a single blind review. We know the, uh, we know the uh, identity of the and institutions of the um, authors. Um, we, it, number one, it helps reviewers identify if there's a conflict of interest. And uh, I don't think it really makes a huge difference. Uh, as you can tell, if you read through the journal, we, we have articles from all over the world. Um, and where we don't, uh, uh, you know, we have no uh, preconceived uh, ideas about articles that come from uh, developing countries or third world countries, we, we treat them all the same. Um, the obligation of confidentiality applies even if the reviews are unblinded, even if it is the journal where um, the, uh, the reviewers uh, and the uh, authors know each other's identity, that's not the case in our journal. Or, uh, of course, if their reviews are double-blinded, uh, you don't know the author and they don't know the reviewer, then, of course, it's not a, it's, 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 it's less of a, it's a little less straightforward, but you still should not be sharing the information regardless of, uh, if you've got it during the review process. Uh, conflicts of interest are, are very important. Um, you should avoid bias based on nationality or political beliefs or religion of the authors um, or your own. Uh, this is particularly a, a concern in single-blinded review where you know the nationality of the authors. Um, I can remember doing one um, article uh, for the for JAD, uh, it was a dermatoethics article, and uh, one of the reviewers had then uh, invited himself to write a commentary. Um, it was clearly very conservative um, uh, politically and, and had views that I, I that you know, we're just, I, th I thought inappropriate and, and clearly showed his, his bias, but, uh, but, you know, we were allowed to respond as well. Um, sometimes you're not sure if you have a conflict of interest or, or if you, what you, what you think may be a conflict of interest may interfere with your reviewing. If you're not sure, you can just ask us, we'll, we'll tell you. Um, if you think you have a personal or financial or professional conflict of interest, uh, you know, the person too well, or you've, they're in your department and we just didn't aware that we weren't aware of that or, or, um, or whatever, then you should uh, recuse yourself from doing the review. 
Um, one thing that does get done, we, I, we've not seen it so much in our journal, but it's, trust me, wherever there, any, any unethical behavior you could think of has been practiced already. Um, slowing the review process or using it to gain an advantage for your own research or publication is, especially if you've submitted something around the same time, is, is, a, uh, is a real no-no. Thanks so much to our wonderful editors. I um, really appreciate what the effort that you put into that talk and looking forward to the good reviews that are to come. Very delighted to introduce Dr. Carrie Coughlin. She is the director of the section of pediatric dermatology and assistant professor of dermatology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and St. Louis Children's Hospital. I've come to know Dr. Coughlin through her significant involvement within PEDRA. She's the amazing chair of the Skin Tumors and Reactions to Cancer Therapies Focus Study Group, and I look forward to hearing more about her publishing experiences tonight. Thanks so much, Dr. Coughlin. Thanks, Elena. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. And we'll go. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Lionel and Andrea, for your great talk. I mean, we all love the journal and it's because of the time and attention that you all put in, as well as the associate editors and all the reviewers um, to, to making it such a strong journal and so helpful and relevant to our field. Um, so my talk today is going to be strategies for success and for failing up. And the way I'm going to work it is have three example articles and ways that we've troubleshooted along the way. Uh, my disclosures, so always good to keep those in mind, the context. So I have a few research grants, uh, a career development award from the Dermatology Foundation, a PEDRA research grant, um, a CREE 2, it's our Center for Race, Ethnicity, and Equity um, here at WashU. And then I review for multiple journals, but I'm on the editorial board for none. And here's our roadmap. We're gonna talk about stages in your writing and revising that you may encounter roadblocks and how to get through them. And we're gonna talk about before you start writing, the revise and resubmit process, and then after your paper has been rejected, <laughs> which will happen at some point. Um, hopefully not often, um, and hopefully for smaller papers of yours, but this will happen. So we're gonna start with before you start writing. Initially, you wanna plan your work and you wanna work your plan. Um, this is something that my grandfather used to say and is very relevant to paper writing. I'm gonna use as an example here, uh, care of the congenital monocytic nevi in newborns and infants, which is a paper that I worked on with multiple people who are um, in this webinar. So thanks guys for attending. And some of you may have heard a little bit about this already in, a, in an SPD journal club. So uh, a paper like this, this was a review that was a multi-site effort. We had researchers from across the country working through PEDRA on this paper. And so some of the lessons that we learned and that we carry forward, you wanna designate a paper lead. If you wanna get your paper published, you need to get your paper written. And to get your paper written, you need to have somebody who's gonna kind of have ultimate responsibility for moving things forward. And sometimes that may seem like a team approach will work and sometimes it does. And other times you really do need a team, but then one person who's ultimately responsible. Um, you want to set a timeline, which will clearly change. We all know things take longer than we think they should. It's like an IRB submission. Um, but you want to set a timeline so that you've got a goal and you can adjust if you need to. Um, you want to discuss your authorship early. The last thing you want to do is have this stellar paper and then have an argument at the end about who's the first author, who's the last author, and where do people fall in between. 
You want to structure your article to try to make it so that it's easier to have it accepted. So you want to review journal requirements. And in doing that, you're going to select your target journal. And so we did this with this care of the congenital monocytic nevi in newborns and infants. We picked a target journal. We read the uh, requirements in detail for the type of review that we were doing. Um, as many of you know, but some of you may not know, there are many different types of review papers and every journal has different instructions on which ones they're interested in, which ones they're not, how you're going to format it. Some journals require um, kind of vetting with the editorial board before you even submit anything or before they'll consider it. Uh, but so we went, we went through all this, we selected our target journal, we were ready to roll, and then we missed the target. So here's our workflow. We submitted, we thought we were just on track and we got a quick rejection. And this keep in mind is a paper that took years to write. <laughs> so it's a little deflating, but no, that's okay. So then we're at the plateau phase. We've got our rejection, our plan here. We, knew, we know it's a strong paper. We know it's useful. We know this is something that people have questions about. We know that it needs to be published um, and can be a valuable contribution to the literature. So we regroup and we think, what next? Do we contact a new journal? Do we kind of look at the requirements again and resubmit somewhere else after reformatting? Well, we decided that we would contact a new journal and it was one that I'd had experience with before enough to know that sometimes they would accept review articles, but other times they would only accept reviews that they had solicited. So we were looking at pediatrics and we contacted the editors there and said, hey, you know, we've got this review that we think is very relevant to your audience. Um, can we run this by you? And the editors were great. They were very happy to work with us, strategized, yes, this is a good article. This is something that would be relevant to our um, target audience. But then they had to think about which journal section it made sense to go in. So working with the editor, we initially identified one section. We're reformatting, going through all the steps. And then the editor's like, you know what? It's not quite right for that section. It should be in this different section. To us, fine. But that actually made a big difference in terms of the ability to have it accepted because if we had not worked with them, we might have submitted to one section and not been asked to resubmit to another. Um, so we went forward with that pediatrics submission. And then the editors were actually looped in on some of the conversations um, as we were kind of going back and forth with the journal and were very nice and responsive. And then we got our paper published. Um, so we have lessons from this. Even if you think your paper is written specifically to a prompt and you are like, we have, we have tailored it to this journal, that journal still might reject you. And, and that's okay. And you can contact then the editors of the initial journal. If you think, hey, I think some, something was missed here. I really do think that this was most appropriate for this particular journal. Or you do what we did, which was think, where's another journal that would be a great target audience? And maybe we reach out to them first to um, improve our paper and hit our target, which is what we did. And we worked along with the editors through that process. And so it ended up being great. Um, and it was a multi-year project. <laughs> so we were very glad when it was published. And here is the citation for the paper. And you can see the, de the designation, instead of being in its review section, it was considered a special article, state-of-the-art review special article um, that made a difference. So our next stage in the roadmap is the revise and resubmit section. And, and this is one where you've done rounds and rounds of edits, your paper's pristine, 
you're it's you you are like this is the one it's going through i'm going to get a gold star on this paper and then 6 weeks later the journal asks you to revise your 2500 original investigation that you've poured your soul into to a 600 word uh, research letter. And so the paper example that I have for this is this skin cancer risk education in pediatric solid organ transplant patients. So this was a paper that was my primary research project as a resident. We were finishing things up while I was a fellow. I was away from WashU while I was a fellow. So there's a lot of back and forth with the statistical team, a lot of effort here. And there was a lot of content in this paper and bam, I, I get asked to cut it, you know, by 75%. So it took me to ask myself some questions. Um, so when you, when you get that sort of response, sometimes it's valid. Sometimes the information that you have, you look back at it and you're like, oh, I did recapitulate a lot of the literature. If I cut out that background, really summarized it more succinctly, I can still get my point across in a much shorter paper. Uh, but you want to make sure that that shorter format actually still conveys the important parts of, of your research, of your work. You also want to assess how novel is your work. So if you want to submit a 2,500 word article on something that is very, very well published, that's probably not going to be as likely to be accepted. But if you feel like your work really does have something new to contribute and you need the data in there to really be able to convey that information, then maybe it's worth not cutting it. And then you also want to consider, well, let me think about the journal that I submitted to and the target readers and think about if maybe there would be another journal that may not have the same perceived reach, but may actually hit more the mark in terms of the audience and may then appreciate the longer format. I also ask myself, what's in the best interest of the data? If I cut down to 600 words, how much data am I gonna leave out? And if that's gonna be a significant portion of what I thought was important, then that shorter format's not gonna work. Um, you also want to think what's in the best interest of your co-authors. I mean, there's some practicality sometimes when you're writing a paper. Does, does this need to be published for a, by a particular time? Do you have people who are transitioning in terms of their careers and going to leave an institution and it's going to be harder for them to keep working on revisions um, if you um, stretch out the process? And then you can also actually contact the editors who sent the initial response. And it could be that one editor thought that it should be a brief report, but somebody else thought it should be an original investigation and they could potentially change their decision. Um, so what, what I ended up doing was actually submitting to a different journal in the longer format and, and finding acceptance there. And that, that was the right call for, for this paper. There, were, there was a lot of primary data that would have been missed. And, and that data not being in the literature would have been a loss to the literature, at least I think. Of course, I'm biased because I wrote the paper, uh, but ended up being a better fit. Uh, but what that process did teach me was in, in the future when I was writing papers, I would think really... Uh, really in depth about the length of the paper. And so I had, I did future work where I might've in the past thought that it should be an original investigation, but really went down to what's the core of this paper? What is the information that really needs to be conveyed? And then was able to actually do a future submission as a research letter and have it fly through with acceptance to a different journal uh, because I picked the appropriate format for that paper. And so you can save yourself some heartache by really kind of thinking about that um, in depth early on. And so here's the citation for this paper um, and it ended up being published in Pediatric Transplantation, which was a, a great fit um, for this paper.
And then part three, we're going to talk about after your paper has been rejected. Now, clearly these first two were also rejected. <laughs> That's part of the theme here is picking yourself up again. But this is uh, another way of, of uh, dealing with rejection. So this is one where we're thinking about a clinical issue. And it's something you come into um, clinic and seen multiple times. There's hardly any literature on the topic. You've, you've, you're like, hey, I, I can actually fill a gap that we've talked about in Grand Rounds. Like, this would be great. So you write this paper, you submit to your target journal, you've got your audience in mind because you are your audience, you read this journal all the time, and then the paper is rejected. And the reviewers say that the topic isn't really relevant. And you're like, it is, but it is. You've encountered it multiple times. And, and you feel kind of like you've hit a, a brick wall at that point. So we're going to talk about what do you do after you hit that brick wall? Um, so this paper is this recurrent onychomedesis of the toenails in, in children and adults and uh, case series here. So the backstory on this paper is actually, there were two brick walls because initially um, people at my institution had submitted an adult case series on this that had been rejected. But then it comes up in grand rounds, clearly there's still a need to discuss it. We have, we say, okay, let's combine your adult patients with our pediatric patients. We'll have a stronger series. We submit to a different journal, we're rejected. <laughs> like, oh, now, now we are, we're hitting this again. Is this really not something that needs to be in the literature or is there some other way to go about this? Uh, fortunately, we happen to be sitting then a month or so later in our summer Society for Pediatric Dermatology meeting, during which a hair, skin, and nails expert from Italy gives a talk. And I think, hmm, I bet she has a lot of nail cases. So I email this um, expert and say, hey, you know, we've got this series, we think it would be useful for the literature. Would you happen to be interested in collaborating? And the expert says, yes, and I've got a ton of cases, I'd, I'd love to contribute. And so that's how we revise is that we, we choose to fail up and, and have a stronger paper with significantly more patients and actually, a, you know, now an international study on this, as opposed to a single site retrospective, which makes the paper a lot stronger. Um, so our lessons learned here are if you have a rejection, but you really think it hits your target audience in your target journal, reevaluate. You can feel empowered to reach out to potential collaborators, even if you don't know them, because you may actually get a, a positive response and then potentially find a journal that's a better fit for your topic. Because if the reviewers of what you think is your target say this is not relevant, well, maybe they're right. So maybe it's a different journal that is more specific that may, may be a better fit. Um, so here's the, the paper here. So we ended up submitting to skin appendage disorders for this hair, skin, and nails. So we've got lots of nails in this paper. And Dr. Pericini was, was wonderful. She was lovely, very responsive to us reaching out. And now we've got this great collaboration that we never would have had if we hadn't been rejected in the first place. So we ended up with a stronger paper, new collaborators, and then a great research experience for the medical student who was working with me on how to do something like this in a multi-site um, study with somebody halfway across the world. Then I have a postscript to part three. Um, so sometimes after your paper has been rejected multiple times from multiple journals, you might actually reevaluate and then decide, you know what? 
maybe this doesn't hit the mark. Maybe there are other papers that are better, um, other papers that are more comprehensive. And, and mine, while I think it is useful, is does not need actually to be published. And that's okay. And so Dr. Elston in the March issue of the JAD has a paper talking about just this thing um, on sunk cost bias and, and encouraging people to sometimes take that step to reevaluate and say, hey, yes, I've put time into this, but putting more time into it isn't going to make it better or more likely to be accepted. So occasionally you'll have a paper that doesn't get published, but that's okay. So my main points of the summary, contact editors before submitting if you're not sure if your paper is a good fit because they can provide you some good information there, give you some good guidance. Um, sometimes your target journal ends up not being the one that's actually the best target. That's okay. And then taking suggestions from a rejection, you can end up with a stronger paper and, and have a better contribution to the literature. So thank you very much. I'm gonna stop my share and turn it back over to our hosts. All right. Um, I wanna thank our amazing speakers today. Thank you so much, Carrie. I learned so much from you and um, Lionel and Andrea as well. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your experiences with reviewing and publishing. Um, with us. Um, and also thank you to the SPD and Pedra for co-hosting this event and for our audience for listening in. Thank you for watching. If you have questions about these presentations, please email us at info at pedraresearch.org and be sure to visit us at pedraresearch.org forward slash education for more educational content. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by searching for the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or PEDRA Research. Thanks for watching.